Micah, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one or should be able to find one in the seat uh, underneath the seat in front of you. And there should be a Bible there. And uh, it will help you to have a Bible ready and open because that is what we're preaching from. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one because you're going to need it. Otherwise, what I'm saying may not make a lot of sense. Maybe a little confusing. Also, in your bulletin on the back, there's a place to take notes. Uh, I find that to be helpful um, at churches. And I can go back and review them throughout the week. So Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. And we've been continuing our journey through Isaiah for the last several weeks. In Isaiah chapter 6, we get to the high point, or I would say maybe the heart of Isaiah's vision of God. Isaiah's vision of God impacts everything in his ministry. His entire ministry is focused on what is going on here in Isaiah chapter 6. In fact, Isaiah, probably a good Hebrew boy, learned the Psalms and the Proverbs. He probably learned the prophets and the law. He knows how to recite them. He can sing the Psalms. He knows about God. He knows a lot about God. In fact, he's probably been told about God from a very early age. The problem is, Isaiah didn't really get to know God until this moment. He knew about God, but he didn't truly know God. That experience is something that we all have. How many of you have experienced knowing about something versus actually knowing something? So this is really vivid for us who are in the military or were in the military, where we learn about war. We study it. We practice our tactics. We study all the details about what combat looks like, what it means to take a life, what it means to get shot at, all that stuff. And we learn about it. But it's not until you go to a combat zone and you are actually in the midst do you actually learn what war is. In fact, it's a kind of a skill in the military to have had combat experience because they know you're not going to buckle under pressure. So when you study for war, or maybe, maybe sports is a better analogy for you. Maybe knowing about racing is different than actually getting into a race and running. Uh, how many have, have gone and, and run some laps or had to do something for PE, but haven't actually gone and done the sport? And it's funny that this worked out so well, but we were talking about football earlier. How many of us are, are Sunday night quarterbacks where we say, oh, man, I can't believe Tom Brady threw that thing, or I can't believe that that, that quarterback did that or that guy did that, and we think we know better because we're not under pressure. We're sitting on our couches uh, you know, relaxing, and because we're Baptists, we're not drinking beers, of course, right? But we're, we're sitting back and we're watching the game and, and we're enjoying and we're trying to tell the quarterback how to do his thing. We know about football, but we haven't been in it. We haven't done it. And so this is what happens to Isaiah. He knows about God. He, he went from knowing about this God to actually knowing God visibly, viscerally, physically experiencing God. And so we can experience God in the same way through his experience. And that's what I'm hoping for us to do today is to experience God through his word, through Isaiah's vision of God. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter six, starting in verse one, it says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. 
They each had six wings, and with two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, and His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Let's pray. Father God, as we read in this passage, Isaiah seeing the King, the Lord of armies. Father, I pray that you help us to see the Lord of lords, the King of kings in this passage. I pray that you would impact our hearts with this message, this gospel message of of Christ coming for those of us who are unable, who are unclean, those of us who are unclean of lips, who live amongst the people of unclean lips. Father, I pray that your atonement would pour fresh upon us today, that we would be uh, rejuvenated by your word. Lord, I know that there's many people in our congregation and uh, in our town who are sick, who are doing are feeling unwell. Father, I pray that you would encourage them uh, during this time, that they would be encouraged to uh, see you more fully, to, to grasp the grace of Jesus Christ in the Word. Father, I pray that you would uh, be with Jessica as she is sick. I pray that you're with Augie as well, um, Lord, and everyone else who is under the weather. God, I pray that you would guide us today, that we would be uh, encouraged by your Word, that we would be fresh um, of seeing, that our eyes would be open to you, that we would not be hard-hearted or or blinded by our own preconceived notions. Father, I thank you for this congregation that has gathered today to worship you. Lord, we we praise and worship a risen Lord, and that's our firm foundation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as you can see from our passage, Isaiah lived out his life based on his view of God. I mean, everything that we've seen up to this point is he knows God and he's warning the people of Israel about this God, the people of Judah in particular. And so we see that he is living his life based on his vision of God. He is preaching this God that he sees right here in chapter six. I think this is the first thing that happened. I think everything that came before was kind of a a prologue to this Isaiah vision. And so this is what happened first. I think this is the first thing that impacted Isaiah. And I think the rest of the book of Isaiah comes from this vision, okay? Because he gets a calling, he gets his, uh, his commission, he is sent out to do a job, and that's what we're going to see next week. But, you know, we all live out our lives based on some worldview. We have some vision of, of what should be right and what should be wrong. I mean, I don't care where you are, what, uh, what society you're in, there's always someone that says, well, that's not right. Right There's a moral statement. That's a controlled belief. And they could say, well, it's just not right that so-and-so does this. So regardless if you're an atheist or if you're a Christian, a Buddhist, a a Muslim, whatever your religious persuasion is, you have a controlled belief system. Um, Even an atheist, if you talk to them and have a conversation and you say, um, well, should I be allowed to murder you? They would say, no, that's wrong. And I say, well, if we are all 
evolutionary products, if we are nothing but fizzy stardust bubbling around in our brain and everything that we think about and see is a chemical reaction, where does morality come from? Well, I just don't think it's right. So you are the objective standard for morality, right? There is a control belief. So we all have control beliefs. We all have a vision and we live our life on these presuppositions. I know that's a kind of a big word to use, but presuppositions. We have a supposition that this is how things should go. And so our view of God is essential. Our view of God is what determines how we think about things. If you are an atheist, you are your own God. That's essentially what you're saying. You're saying, I believe these things. Therefore, I should be the arbitrator of what is right and what is wrong. We just, that's just a natural outcome. Uh, a famous guy, I'm not going to say who it is, but he says, what comes, out, what comes into your minds when we think about God is the more, most important thing about us. Think about that for a minute. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In fact, Terry just brought it up in our psalm this morning. He says, what is your view of God? Who do you think Jesus is? Is he this gentle and lowly kind of um, shampoo hair model kind of guy who has like nice fluffy hair and he's just holding baby lambs and, and he's cuddling with all the little kids and all that. And, it, and he's real, real harmless. Well, that is a perspective of God. That is something who Jesus is. He is gentle and lowly of heart. He calls people to him. He hugs people. But he's also the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we have to have a full orb vision of who God is. And that is what guides our actions. In fact, Isaiah's overriding vision of God is that God is holy, and His holiness is what He is. It's not one of His attributes, it's the collection of all His attributes. It is what represents Him. He is holy, and we're going to kind of unpack what that means. And I would also want to argue this, that most, the most dominant errors in the Christian church today spring from a lack of respect and appreciation for God's holiness. I think that's the major issue in the church today. There's a lack of respect and appreciation for God's holiness. So this is also a great comfort to us. Because if we think about God, we must see Him as holy. And that should impact everything that we do, not only in the good times, but more, more so in times of crisis. You have to have the right vision of a holy God. And that's what this is pointing out today. The first thing you notice is... In the year that King Uzziah died, verse 1, uh, the very first part of verse 1. Who is Uzziah? Well, he was the king of, of Judah for over 50 years, about 52 years. He was the king, and he reigned pretty well. He was a pretty good king overall, except in a kind of Shakespearean model at the very end. He does something silly. He goes into the, into the holy holies and decides to offer some, some incense to God against God's word. And the priests confront him, and he gets angry, and he gets leprosy, and he's immediately removed from the rest of the people. He's isolated because of his rebellion. And so though he's a good king for most of his life, the last few years, he lives in isolation and solitary, full of leprosy. But think about this. Their king that they've had for 50 years, the one who has been kind of keeping them safe, has now died. How many of you, um, you know what, Don't, let's not do it this way. Many of you probably remember when Kennedy was assassinated. And when he was assassinated, there was a, a level of fear and instability that happened. Um, I remember hearing stories about people listening to the radio 
and trying to anticipate what's going to happen and, and hearing all the different dialogues. And every, I guess everybody probably learned how succession worked in the, the form of government. Who's going uh, to be next? But maybe more for, for our modern ears or our more, more recent years, we can think about the change of presidents. There's a level of instability. What's going to happen are the same gas prices going to change? Or is my life going to be impacted? Am I going to be changed by a, a change in government? And so even with this, this last uh, cycle of elections, we have a, a instability, a fear of what is going to happen. There's a, a type of time of crisis. Now, this time of crisis could be something personal for you. You may be sick. Your friends may be sick. You may have lost a loved one. You may be losing loved ones right and left. And your whole life is nothing but exhaustion. You may be tired. You may be worn out. This season may not feel like such a great Thanksgiving season this year. You may not know what to thank God for. You may be uh, in a time of, of moving. Many people are moving locations right now. This is a time of, of change for so many of you. And so Isaiah is not making a, an accident here. He's not just randomly throwing words on a page. He is very specific. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw. He's pointing to the death of the king, highlighting that his ministry is for a comfort in a time of crisis. So a time of crisis. It's significant to understand the timing because it highlights this nation of Judah in crisis. King Uzziah has died, but the Lord is still seated on his throne. So you have to have the right vision of God. That is essentially what this first little snippet is saying. The right vision of God is necessary in your time of crisis. When everything goes to poop in your life, you need to know who God is. You need to know Him clearly. You need to know who this God is. And you may have, a, 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 you may have maybe some thoughts about what God might be, but is it grounded in the reality of his word? And we've talked about this so many times, it's kind of almost redundant to say it, but you can't just go outside and stare at a mountain and come up with a vision of God. No, you have to read who God is in his word. God has inspired this, this word for your benefit, so you can know who this God is. God is not some mystical being that doesn't want you to know who he is. He reveals himself so clearly, and we're going to see who this is today. In fact, I want you to ask the question, if you don't really know who God is, why would you trust him? Why would you trust God if you don't know who he is? So our job as, as believers, as Christians, and in fact, in, in general, our job is to get to know who God is. That's your job. Your full-time job is to know God. Yeah, we, we may do work. We may be dental hygienists and dental assistants and, and everything else, but our God personally. And so let's see how Isaiah saw God. What vision of God did he have? This is the second point in our thing. We see that we look at his word, and I want you to notice something. So, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. We're still in verse 1, folks. This is going to be a long sermon. All right. So the second part says, I saw the Lord. I want you to look very carefully at where it says Lord. Look how it is spelled, how it is written. 
Is it all caps or is it mostly lowercase except for the first L? In your Bible, it should have lowercase Lord. This is significant. If you go back to the very beginning of your Bible, it tells you why they do this. This lowercase Lord means Adonai. It's from the Hebrew word Adonai, which we would translate Lord. But I want you to notice something. Look at verse 3. After the holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. How is that Lord spelled? It's all caps. So in the Hebrew, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh, God's covenantal name, God's special name that he revealed to his people. So we have two lords in here that we could easily miss if we're not paying attention, if we're not careful. So we have Adonai and we have Yahweh. So he saw Adonai seated on a high throne, high and lofty throne. Now this is not just me nerding out over Hebrew stuff. There's a reason. It's significant. I want you to go and keep your finger here or put a bookmark here and go back to Psalm 110 verse 1 that we read this morning or well, that Terry read for us this morning. And there's something very significant here in this part of the passage. This is the most quoted of the New Testament, uh, Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament quotes this more than anything else. And this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Do you see the two lords there? What's the differences between those two lords? One is capped, one is lowercase. So the capped one is Yahweh. So this is the declaration of Yahweh to my Adonai, to my Lord. This is important because it is the most often used reference quoting or to Jesus Christ, pointing to Jesus Christ. In fact, we're going to go one more place if you're not convinced. Turn to Acts chapter 2. So keep your finger in Isaiah. I know this is a lot of Bible drill going on today, but I kind of think it's important that we get this right off the bat. So Acts chapter 2. Verse 34 is where we'll begin. So we have here a sermon pointing to Jesus, talking about the Messiah. He's trying to convince the Jews. And in verse 34, he says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's quoting back from Psalm 110. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both the Lord and Messiah. Once again, pointing to this Lord, this Adonai, being a reference to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is what is being pointed to in Psalm 110. And also, I'm going to argue that this is who Isaiah saw. If you don't believe me, we're almost there. There's one more place that we can look. John 12, 38, and you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you, but maybe jot it down if you want a question. Um, definitely check my work. That is what your job is, to pay attention and check my work. Because I want you to not just take my word for it, but to take the word for it. John chapter 12, 38 through 41 says this. 
This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah to the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes, and this is in reference to our passage, blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Verse 41 is the key. Isaiah saw, said these things because he saw, what did he see? His glory and spoke about him. So who did Isaiah see? He saw Jesus. This is a reference to Jesus. Isaiah saw Christ. So if you're back in, in Isaiah 6 now, so sorry about that, guys. I know we're flipping, flopping back and forth. But Isaiah 6, if you continue through our passage in verse 3, says, His glory fills the whole earth. And not only that, but Isaiah was commissioned to speak about this glory that he saw. Isaiah's commission was to speak about the glory of God, who is Jesus Christ. And it says that Isaiah saw the Messiah. That's what our passages have pointed to. So, I think in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form before he came as a man. So, he's talking about Christ here. And now, this also lines up with several passages in Revelation, um, which we can't get into today, but recognize that this is connected throughout all of Scripture. Jesus is not just a thing that happened in the New Testament. Jesus didn't just get started as a baby in a manger. Jesus was there before the beginning of the world. He always was. Now, this is important that we pay attention to this for several reasons. One is because it points to at least two persons in the Trinity of the three in one. At the same time, it shows some distinction, but it also shows their one of God's plan of redemption, God's plan to save people. God has a plan to save people. And so not only this, we see that the Lord is seated on a high and lofty throne, which means he is sovereign. So to get this vision of God, we want to understand who God is. And one thing we see is that he is sovereign. What does that mean? That means he is king. He is the Lord overall. We have this, this, this view of God in this passage. I just want you to try to put yourself as if you're envisioning what's going on here. Isaiah is probably in the temple in Jerusalem, probably face down, and he is getting this vision of who God is. And as he is seeing, he sees something. And what does he see? He sees the Lord. And what does he see the Lord doing? The Lord is seated on a throne. And where is this throne? It is high and lifted up. It's lofty. Not only that, but his, his robe is, the hem of his robe is filling the entire place. So he has a very long royal robe, which is indica indicative of his authority. It means he has all power over all. If you uh, know much about royal etiquette, which I do not, obviously, I am a son of the Revolutionary War, and so I don't care too much about the babies in England and all the kings and queens and all that. But what I do know is that they have a, a, a system of recognizing who is the most authoritative in a family, a royal family. And part of that is their robe. 
how long their robe is. So the longer the robe, the more authority that king or queen is supposed to have. And so what Isaiah sees here is that the Lord has the most extensive robe, robe more than anyone else in the area. His authority and majesty is greater than any other monarch or ruler on the earth. He sees the Lord as sovereign. God has control over all things. This is not, he doesn't wait for man to give a command and do it. He is not the servant of man. Man is the servant of God. God is in control over the whole earth. The second thing you see is that he's attended by these seraphim. Now that sounds like a bad word, right? Seraphim. These seraphim mean burning ones. These are heavenly beings, supernatural beings. It says the seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With their two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. So who are these seraphim? Well, they're creatures. We know that. They're servants of God. They're waiting. They're attending on the Lord. And these seraphim are constantly in motion here in this passage. And they are attending. These superhuman beings are attending to the Lord. Now, it's interesting that they have six wings. Six wings, two of which they used to fly, two of which they cover their faces. Why would they cover their faces? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is because their job is not to, to, to look at the Lord, but to listen and respond to His will. Also, it's a respect thing. They can't even, even though that they are perfect beings in heaven, heavenly beings, they cannot even look upon the Lord. They cannot even have their face uncovered before the God. That's how powerful the Lord is. But not only that, they cover their feet. Their feet is covered because it is a symbol of a creature, of their creatureliness. Remember Moses, when the burning bush was happening, he walked up and then the, vo- the voice spoke from the bush and the bush said, um, take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. It's a respect thing. It's a covering up of their creatureliness, their symbol of humility. So these creatures, as, as fascinating as they are, burning beings uh, with these six wings coming out of them, they are humble before God, before the Lord. But the idea behind this is not so much to to dwell into the mysteries of this, because we could spend a lot of time speculating on why they have wings that are six of them. Why are they burning ones? Why are they on fire? Why is this? What is that? We could spend a lot of time, but Isaiah doesn't dwell on that, does he? Because he immediately jumps into what they are saying. That's what's important here. So, The verbs in this passage are all pointing to constant movement. The seraphim are standing, they're covering, they're flying, they're calling to one another. And what are they calling to one another? The third thing about who God is. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. This is what they begin to cry out. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. This reminds us a little bit of Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, the scene that John saw when he was lifted up into the throne room. But this thrice holy God, three times holy, nowhere else is God's attributes repeated three times. Nowhere else in the Bible will you find an attribute of God repeated three times. This is the only place, well, here in Revelation, but what, is it, what does it say? It says... God is holy, 
holy, holy. God is not love, love, love. God is not mercy, mercy, mercy. God is holy. What does that mean? That's significant because I think a lot of times we, we want to diminish God's holiness because we want to highlight his love because God is love. But God is also holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is what drives everything else about him. Holiness implies absolute moral, moral purity and separateness from the created. So God is, is holy, holy, holy. God is separated from the rest of his creation because of his perfectness, his otherness, his, his moral purity. Anyone in this room perfect? Anybody in this room never make a mistake? I mean, anybody besides me? No, of course not. We're all wretches. We all make mistakes. We all sin. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We don't measure up to God's perfect holiness. And that is what is so traumatizing about this passage. And every system of belief seeks some way to deal with guilt and shame. If you're in a psychologized kind of community, a society that deals with everything psychology, they will try to explain away shame and guilt. If you are in a community of um, works-based type salvation, you will try to work your way out of guilt and shame. If you are a Christian, you don't have to do that because God makes a way for mere, mere humans to be able to be in his presence, to not just melt into his overwhelming majesty. And God's perfect holiness is manifested in his glory. So when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking really about his holiness that has been revealed throughout the whole earth, that is covering the whole earth. You know, in Arizona, we have some of the most magnificent sunsets and sunrises in the whole world, I would say. I'll just go ahead and stake my flag on that. We have some of the most amazing sunsets. And I wake, I've been waking up early to go and do my devotions and to watch the sunrise. I've been getting up just to watch them. And every morning, I am impacted by my smallness, how small I am, and yet God's vastness. And every morning, he is painting a masterpiece with infinite variations. It's something that no human being could do. You could commission the best artist in the world and say, I want you to make a masterpiece every morning and every night just for me with all the unique colors. That person would go crazy because that's impossible. No human being can do this. And so God displays this miracle day by day, morning by morning, night by night, just in his sunrises and sunsets. But you look at anything else in, the, in, in, in nature, you see intricate detail. Our human bodies are, are just fascinating. That's why some of the, the best scientists were Christians. All the early scientists were Christians because they wanted to discover God's creation and to learn more about it. So God displays his full glory in just little uh, snapshots for us in creation. Along with this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, is the concept of his glory filling the whole earth. Now, glory is a technical term. It signifies God's presence with his people. It's seen as a cloud in the wilderness. If you remember in the Old Testament, the cloud in the wilderness, it fills the tabernacle, and it's in anticipation 
of God filling the whole earth with his presence. The whole world would become God's sanctuary, as we've seen throughout the Old Testament. Now, Isaiah is constantly looking forward to the time where God will dwell among his people. Constantly, he is talking about it. Everywhere we go in Isaiah, he's pointing to it. In fact, we see John 1.14 taking this concept in the New Testament and saying, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John points to this Messiah and says, that was Jesus. Jesus is the flesh and blood dwelling of God with his people. Now, I don't want to move beyond this passage too quickly. In fact, I would, I would recommend to you, encourage you to revisit this passage this week. Reread Isaiah chapter 6 um, several times this week, maybe daily. And I want you to think about a couple things. I want you to think about what it means for God to be holy which means he is perfect in purity and he's completely other than everything that you can experience. I want you to think about the significance of the Messiah Christ being revealed in this passage. This hope of a revealed glory that Isaiah got just a small glimpse of. And then the final question, I guess a third question, would be knowing that God is holy and sovereign, how would that change how you deal with your problems? If you know that God is holy and sovereign, how would that change how you deal with your problems? Would it lead you to your own ways? Would you try to come up with solutions on your own abilities? Or will it lead you to trust Him more? Because that's ultimately what this is about, trusting in the Lord. Do you trust this Lord, this, this vision, this image of a thrice Holy God. Thrice is a fancy way of saying three. I just I learned that in a dictionary the other day. Thrice holy God should lead you to see your creatureliness, your lack of holiness. And this is exactly what happens to Isaiah. He responds to the vision of God just as creation does. Look at verse 4. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. We see movement. At the cry of the seraphim, the whole foundations of the doorways of the temple begin to shake. The whole place is getting like an earthquake. Revelation of the Holy One is disturbing. It is something that the creation is not ready for. You probably are not ready for God to reveal Himself in His majesty at this moment because you will hit the ground like Isaiah saying, Woe is me. This glimpse of the Lord this creation begins to respond. And in verse 5, we see awe, amazement. Have you ever seen something and just said, whoa, that is amazing, right? Have you ever gone to the Grand Canyon at just the right time and said, look at me, everyone, look how powerful I am? No, of course not. You look at the Grand Canyon and you're like, whoa. Have you ever been caught up in a really heavy-duty storm or with the wind just blowing you around like a rag doll, and you recognize, you know what? I'm not that big. I'm not that in that control. And that's what we see Isaiah do. He becomes aware of himself. This is the first time we see Isaiah really recognize where he is. And he says, and we actually see this is the first time he speaks. 
we see him speak and he says, I am the imposter. I am the one that doesn't belong here. I am the thing that is out of place in this picture. He goes, woe is me, for I am ruined. Not only that, he's ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Isaiah speaks, and he is first to prophesy against himself. We remember other earlier passages. Just last week, he was declaring all these woes on on the people of Judah. He says, woe to you, woe to this, woe to you who do this. Ultimately, though, he says, woe is me. Right? When we point our fingers at someone, we have how many fingers pointing back at ourselves, right? Ultimately, he's pointing first to himself. And his prophetic voice, the voice that God has given him, recognizes his uncleanliness. He confesses it. He knows he should not be anywhere near God as an unclean person. Isaiah sees himself and his generation as unfit for God. Experiencing God, friends, is a humbling thing. It should humble us because we don't deserve it. It shouldn't cause us to look down on other people. It should cause us to look down on ourselves. I think Christians who have this humbling vision of God should be condemning themselves first of all, first, and then proclaiming to others. God humbles us when we get this vision of God and we treat others with more abundant grace because we know what we don't deserve and that we're getting the free grace of God. And we're going to see next week how the Lord remedies Isaiah's situation. But this is what he says. He says, I am ruined. Your translation may say something like, I am undone, or destroyed, or silenced. The Hebrew word here is often used for the silence of sudden death. You ever been around a morgue? It's pretty quiet. There's not a lot of laughing and partying going on. Right, it's quiet. Or you ever been to a cemetery? It's quiet. People want to be respectful. And that's what Isaiah has now. He is silenced. He's excluded from God's heavenly choir. He's forbidden to join in with his sinful lips. Because these angels or these seraphim, whatever you want to call them, they, these heavenly beings, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. They're crying out about who God is. And Isaiah is forbidden from joining in. And he is forbidden. But what was his sin? Isaiah's sin. He says, because I have unclean lips. What in the world? In our generation, you know, we're, we, we say, what do you mean, unclean lips? Well, you've got some COVID going on? What, what is that? What is going on with you? He says, Isaiah recognizes first and foremost The primary element about God's holiness is what distinguishes God from his creatures. That God is holy. He sees that his character is not in keeping with God's character. He knows like how Christ told us that his lips could pour forth praise, but what comes out of our mouth proceeds from our heart. He recognizes that it's the heart that pours forth what comes out of our mouth. So what comes out of your mouth is what comes from the heart. Isaiah had not yet been truly placed as right before God in a righteous sense. Isaiah's mouth was unready to sing the praises of God. In the the year King Uzziah died, 
Isaiah says he saw the king. Isaiah is dead, but Yahweh is still on his throne. The fate of the nation relies or lays in God's hands. And now Isaiah is forever changed by this experience. The question that you need to ask yourselves today is, do you experience this fear of God? Do you see God as holy, holy, holy? Or do you have some cartoon version of who God is? Or maybe you have a vision of God that's like more of like an old Santa Claus who just gives you the gifts that you want when bad things happen. Maybe it's like a vending machine that you put in the quarter of your prayer and you get out the candy bar. How do you measure the, your growth in faith and this trust of this holy God? Do you measure it against other people? Do you say, well, at least I'm doing better than so-and-so down the street. I don't have a string of girlfriends or boyfriends, or I don't have a bunch of bottles laying out in my yard, so I'm doing better than everybody else. Yeah, I may beat my wife, but everything's going great on my side, right? How do you measure growth in your personal life, especially when it comes to God? 1 Peter 1.16 says, For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. This is God saying, Be holy because I am holy. Holiness is only possible through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can only measure our holiness, our growth in holiness, to God. You can't measure it to your neighbor, to your pastor, to your friends, to your siblings, to your spouses. Only through Christ are we made holy. And it's not of our own ability. <clears throat> the way is made possible by the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 12, 20, 14 says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. If you do not have holiness, you will not see the Lord. So how do you get this holiness? Well, first of all, it's through Jesus Christ. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ today, if you do not have this relationship, then you will not see the Lord. You will not see God. This is a sad thing. This is a terrifying thing. So you have to have the holiness that comes from Jesus Christ. But not only that, those of us who are Christians, it doesn't mean we lay down on the couch and pray that God will zap us into holiness. right? We are, we are called to action. We have to pursue Holiness is a basic part of the Christian life. So if it's so basic, why do so many of us fail to pursue it? I have three quick reasons, three reasons why we do not have meaningful progress. The first one is we fail to see sin for what it is. We fail to see sin to what it is. Our attitude towards sin is self-centered rather than God-centered. We'd rather have victory rather than faithfulness. We are more concerned about winning a battle against the flesh then the fact that our sin is ultimately a break in a relationship with a holy and perfect God. We're so busy trying to be victors, we are really more victims. We fail. We don't like to fail because we want success rather than resolving an offense against God. We'd rather be successful than humble. The second thing is we fail to understand our role. We think either, one, that there's no effort on our part. We think that we can eat potato chips and get in shape for a marathon. We, said that we think that we can sit on the couch and watch all the Netflix shows and then get up and, and do something hard. That's not what this is. We, have a, we are called to pursue holiness with all of our strength. Not that we can achieve it on our own power, but it's through God. We have a personal responsibility for our walk 
in holiness. How often do we open God's word before we get on Instagram or before we turn on Twitter or the news, right? What's the first thing you grab in the morning? Is it your phone to look at Facebook or is it God's word to see what he has to say? We tend to fail because we don't pay attention to our responsibility. Though victory belongs to the Lord. Third, we failed to see how serious sin is. In fact, we, we say we got little sins on my side, but those are big sins over there. And so my little sins, I'm going to add my little sins up and your big sins are going to overwhelm them. And we have a, a system of checks and balances. We don't realize that even the smallest sin is a rebellion against God. Even the smallest sin in your life is what is damaging to your relationship with the Lord. So often we want to excuse our own sin as respectable, right? We have respectable sin. Well, I may, I may cuss and, and drink, but at least I'm not committing adultery. Or I may commit adultery, but at least I'm not cussing and drinking. Goodness gracious, how silly is that? We recognize that our sins show that we fail to measure up. So we need to settle these issues in our life. Determined to look at sin for what it is, it's an offense against God. But praise be to God that he has provided a way of salvation. We, don't, we cannot make ourselves better. You know, a lot of us will dress up to church. But guess what? Underneath, we got what? What do we have underneath the skin or underneath the shirt? Man, I got tattoos. I got, I got a history. I got a past. I have a, a life of debauchery behind me. Man, God would never love me. I got to put on a front and pretend. That's not what, that what we see here. What we see here is that regardless of what you look like, regardless of what your past is, regardless of who you were in the past, Christ comes, the Messiah is here, and he will call you to his purpose. He will make you holy as he is holy. He has made the sacrifice. So you do not have to do this on your own strength. This is not get, get all dressed up and come to church. This is Christ does all the work. And what do we do? We thank him. Thanksgiving is coming up. Our responsibility is to live in thankfulness to what he has done. The way we do that is we submit our lives to, to the Lord. We want to live as the word has commanded. We want to live our lives out of gratefulness. It is the commands in Scripture are not the steering wheel of the life. It's what we have to do. So Christ is the replacement for our sin. We have to see this vision here. So we have to be gripped by the vision of God, yet recognize he provides the hope that we have. So next week, we'll see the rest of Isaiah's calling and ministry. How does this man, Isaiah, become the spokesperson for God? We will see that God is the one who sends him to a people who do not want to listen, who do not hear him. So let's remember what we just, we just learned today. God is sovereign and he rules. Nothing in this world is happening by accident. In fact, God had a plan for Christ before the foundation of the world. Not one rogue molecule exists. God is in control of everything on this planet. Not one thing is happening counter to God's plan. He is sovereign. That's what sovereignty means. He is the king of the world. Second, God is holy, 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 which means he is perfect in truth, in purity, and morality, and let's not forget this, in goodness. He is good. Everything that proceeds from him is good. 
Our response to this vision should be awe, humility, and confession. We confess we don't measure up. I do not measure up to a holy and perfect God. I have so much sin in my life that I do not measure up. And all I can do is ask for His forgiveness and His mercy and His grace. We must confess that God is God and we are not. If you're a Christian in this room, that should be your posture daily. God is God and you are not. That's what it means to really experience God. This vision should strip us of our dependence on self, capital S, capital E, capital L, capital F, self. It should strip us of our dependence of ourselves and cast ourselves on Christ and His mercy. You know, I need to remember this every day. This is a reminder I need every single day because it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day grind of life, to, to meet deadlines, to answer emails, to do phone calls, if I don't remember this. So the question that you need to have this week is, how do you see God? How do you see God? Explore that question this week. Uh, maybe ask your neighbor, when you hear about God, what do you think about? And have a conversation and point them to this passage and see what happens. All right? That's the the challenge this week. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this holy, holy, holy God that we worship. Lord, we are so undeserving of having a God like you. Lord, we know that you created the whole cosmos. You created all things, and they were good. Yet, Father God, we recognize that man sinned. And that sin has infected the whole earth. Lord, we know that the only solution comes from you. Lord, we know that this is your, your antidote, is your son, Jesus Christ, for the sin of the world. Father, I pray that everyone in this room will have a bigger vision of God, that the iceberg that they came in with of who God is will be expanded to the whole thing, not just surface level, but even underneath the surface. That everyone in this, this church would leave knowing that God is sovereign, and God is holy, and that we can respond in amazement, that we respond in humility, and that we offer grace to those around us because we recognize we also fail to measure up, and it's only because of Christ that we can come and worship you. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, a day of rest, Sunday. Uh, We thank you for this week, and I pray that this week would be a time of thanksgiving. This week would be a time of of rest for those who need it. Lord, that you would provide for everyone in this room in some significant way, that they would be refreshed from this week and come back ready to anticipate Christmas, the Messiah that was so long expected. Father, we pray and we thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the beautiful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.